Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now radio check. Now radio check for order. Half hour is to go. 50,000 watts. Oh, that sound is beautiful. This is Bradley J. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, how do you do? You're Jay talking. We're live midnight two five. Did you listen to Nightside? It was really good tonight. It's always good. It was really, really good tonight. And you might have heard me mention bubonic plague and United States in the same sentence, which is a bit scary. Well, it happened. As far as I, as far as I know, I mean, here's the book. We have David Randall here to talk about it. Black Death at the Golden Gate: The Race to Save America from the Bubonic Plague. How you doing, Randall? Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. I mean, how do you not have an author of a book like this on? So this is out in San Francisco, and uh, prior to 1900, there was a real problem with the plague in China. Correct? Massive. Death. Yeah. Millions died. It, exactly. So, you know, everybody knows, everybody remembers middle school or, or high school, and you, you hear about the plague, how it decimated Europe in you know, the 1300s. What a lot of people don't know is that, you know, the plague came back, uh, and it, it mostly came back in, in Asia uh, in about 1870. So it starts spreading through China. Uh, it gets to, to Hong Kong, and it you know, decimates the city. Uh, hospitals there are reporting a you know 95% death rate. Uh, it continues to spread, express to India. Um, so 10 million people die in China, 5 million people die in India. Uh, it spreads to Australia, it spreads to Scotland, uh, and it seems like it's just going to be a matter of time before it finally gets to the U.S. Uh, for the first time in history. And it does around 1900. I guess this is where we we get we really drill down. Let's start by describing the San Francisco of 1900. Sure. So this San Francisco is still a, a really young city. You know, the the gold rush was only 50 years beforehand. So there are still people walking the streets of San Francisco who were literally gold miners who who came out there for that. Um, and you know, San Francisco is is kind of the the entryway for the U.S. to the world. Um, the, you know, the ships going through the Golden Gate, um, you know, there's no bridge there, obviously. Um, they might be coming in from Alaska. They might be coming in from Russia. They might be coming in from Japan or, or Australia or even people coming from Europe or New York. They're still, that's how you get to San Francisco still for many people that go around South America. Um, and this is, you know, it's a big city. It's, it's the most important city in, in the West. But it's also a city that even though it's growing, still has all the problems of a, of a frontier town. Um, even as San Francisco grows, the amount of money they spend on public health and sanitation falls. 
So this is, you know, it's in really many ways a, a filthy city. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, a city that's growing in importance. Um, and there's also the largest uh, Chinese community in, in the U.S. is in, in Chinatown in San Francisco. Uh, about 20% of the population uh, is is in, of the whole city's population is in Chinatown, which is about 12 blocks right in the middle of the city. And that's where the first plague victim in the U.S. is found. You talk about San Francisco as a hollow city, which I thought was interesting. Can you let us know what you mean by that? Sure. So San Francisco, so much of, of people, of, of the ethos of the city is people moving there because they're looking for luck. Uh, it's it's really a still idea of the gold rush, the mentality. Um, you know, it's I say in the book that it's a city where people believe in fate rather than skill, um, that they're coming out there because they think luck is going to to you know look down on them and they're going to um, and it's, their life is going to work out and you know they're going to become rich, um, but at the same time it's a city where everything is is done very quickly and done um, not in necessarily idea that it has to be permanent or that there's a sense of responsibility to to others, so they build one of the most beautiful uh, city halls west of Chicago. It's, it's a huge beautiful building. But by the time it actually opens, they realize that it's it's uh, it's made terribly. That you know, one of the building inspectors goes through the um, the basement, and it looks like people have just taken to it with a, a hatchet, and you know, there's filth everywhere, uh, and that kind of bleeds out across San Francisco. That many of the institutions, many of the buildings, many of the people, in fact, have this idea that it's a, almost like a get-rich-quick city. And because of that idea, that there's no real focus on building things to last. So would you say that it's a city packed with people lacking character, lacking morals, like kind of a corrupt, driftery, not the best folks populating this town? Exactly. I mean, it's it's also a town where it's a big sailor town. So it's a lot of transient people um, and people come in from around the world and that's, it has such a reputation of a place to go for you know fast living and sin that there's a, a whole neighborhood around the uh, around the bay uh, right on the water. It's called you know they start calling it the Barbary Coast, um, and you know guidebooks to the city at the time say like only you know only a brave person will go there after night because you're in, you're in sailor town now you've left the civilized world behind essentially. Did the Chinese bring over opium with them? Was that was that an issue? That, so opium was an issue, but it wasn't necessarily connected to plague. But it did become an issue in Chinatown that it was almost a a tourism thing. That um, you know, for obviously some people would go and, and smoke in opium dens, and that would that would you know decimate their lives. But it would also become something that um, you know police officers off duty would would take um, tours of tourists into Chinatown to see the opium dens. And to see this, it almost seemed like the exotic thing from the other side of the world is, is actually in, in San Francisco. Uh, and Chinatown really was a part of, of China that was brought over, essentially brought over to San Francisco. If you walk down the streets, all the, the, all the signs were in Chinese characters. Um, you know, the smell and the sounds and the look of, of being in China. You know, many of the, it was mostly men who came. Um, many men came 50 years before. Mm-hmm. 
to build the transcontinental railroad, which which was completed 150 years ago this year, um, and many of them them stayed because they were drawn for for the promise of work, uh, and many men expected to go back to China, uh, and to do so they needed to keep their it's, it was called a queue it was like a long braided ponytail um, that was a symbol of loyalty to the emperor, uh, so many men would walk around Chinatown with this flowing down their backs. Um, and, it, you, you know, somebody who was walking around Chinatown then um, could f- easily forget that they were in San Francisco. How about sanitation? Was that, I, I mean, in 1900, sanitation wasn't what it is today. Was it even worse in San Francisco? It was, yes. It was It was a, a absolutely filthy town. Um, if if somebody from then came to our cities today, no matter where you are, uh, they would be absolutely amazed at how clean and, and sanitary it is. Um, San Francisco, it was a town where you would walk down the street and see uh, you'd see the carcass of a, of a horse, and people would throw scraps and food into the street, hoping for the rats to come and take it away. They expected them to do it. Uh, and you know, this was something that, you know, to be fair, Many big cities were were absolutely disgusting. Then, um, in New York, there was the meatpacking district, and that's where you know they'd slaughter animals, and um, the the blood would spill out of the streets onto the sidewalk. And you know, kids used to uh, stand on the corner and, and sweep a path through the blood for people for for five cents or so. Um, San Francisco had all those problems, but more uh, because there was no I, no sense of of public responsibility or, or the sense of, you know, we're all in this together. Uh, so people were, were really allowed to do whatever they wanted. And very few of them thought that, you know, something they wanted to do was clean up the city. Okay. So we've talked about San Francisco and what a mess it was at the time. Now, I guess it would be time to talk about the first gentleman, that gentleman, the first man that was found to have I guess his name is Wong Shut King. That's right. So he he was an immigrant who was living in Chinatown. Uh, he uh, he's the first known victim of of the disease. Um, you know, one one issue comes up later is they the public health officials who were trying to to stem this epidemic aren't exactly sure how long the disease has been in the city and, and how fast it's spreading. So. They they're almost you know kind of flying blind a little bit, um, but Wan Chuck King he is uh, he dies, um, and he's only they only know that he had the plague because a city health official who is you know writing out a death certificate decides on, almost on a whim to do a very cursory examination of his body, and they see he sees a bubo which is a swollen lymph node, uh, and you can either have it in your groin or or your uh, armpits and it turns black and that's where you get the name bubonic plague and that's where also where you get the phrase black death um so he he spots this he jumps back in fear because instinctively because he knows what it is and he knows how how terrifying it is you know plague once you catch it uh you have about 48 hours to 72 hours before you you die um, at the time there was uh, there's no medicine or cures for it. There, there were no vaccinations. Um, there's still no vaccinations for plague. Uh, so instantly, you know, they, they sound the alarm and uh, 
public health officials start uh, stringing up wires around Chinatown to, to quarantine it all. Uh, and at the same time, they, they rush some of the tissues taken from the body to a man named Joseph Kenyon, who is the public health official in charge of San Francisco. And he ends up playing a, a key part in the story. What's that key part? So he is uh, he's one of he's known as one of the most brilliant doctors in the in the country. Uh, he knows more about plague than perhaps anybody else in, in the country. He's worked with some of the researchers who have who are trying to stem the outbreaks in, in uh, India and China. He is in San Francisco, though, not because of the plague, but almost uh, in, in spite of it. He uh, he had been in Washington. Uh, he had played a, a key part in, in um, doing everything from sanitizing Congress to uh, you know, the, the actual building of Congress, not the Congress itself, um, to, to all these other things. And he's credited with bringing uh, the Marine Health Service, which is the forerunner of the U.S. Public Health Service, to a higher level of, of science. This is a time when science and medicine are really at the, the doorstep of the modern age. Uh, this is the era when you know, the practice of medicine changes from a doctor being skilled because he's very fast um, when, you know, when pain medication is not readily available to the era when you think of medicine as you know, people in white lab coats with microscopes and x-rays. So this is, he's, Kenyon's one of the forerunners of, of this new age. But he, you know, as brilliant as he is, he doesn't really have much social intelligence. You know, he can't get people to like him and agree with him. He almost has a talent for making people hate him. And one of the people who hates him is the Surgeon General, um, who is jealous after somebody writes an article saying that Kenyon should be the real Surgeon General because he's so brilliant. So the Surgeon General essentially exiles Kenyon out to San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco, uh, Kenyon, once he's there, is essentially looking for his shot to, to make his name so he can come back as a hero or, or vindicate, vindicate it to a certain extent. So he sees plague. He, you know, he sees Wancha King's uh, tissues. He tests them. He, he realizes there's plague here. And he tries to sound an alarm to, uh, to stem and, and contain the disease because he's studied the outbreaks in China. He knows that plague has this strange tendency to spread slowly at first, and then it's almost like it lit a match and it explodes everywhere. So he doesn't know how close it is to that explosion. Um, but then as he starts trying to put, into me put measures in to protect the, not only the city, but the entire uh, country. Because uh, he knows that all it takes is for one person who's infected to get on a train heading east, and then suddenly you have plague in Detroit, Cleveland, and Philadelphia, and Boston, and New York, and the spread across the country, and there's no way to contain it. Uh, so he starts trying to do these measures that he knows will save lives, but then suddenly everywhere he looks, people are, are putting roadblocks in front of him. So you, you mentioned there's no cure and there's no vaccine, but there was the serum, the Hafkin serum, which he at least could try to try to use on the folks. But he's a guy, he was too shy or too antisocial to go to Chinatown where he needed to be, correct? Well, everybody, everybody hated him. He just seemed to, to rub people. You know, there's a lot of people who are, are very smart, but they just rub people the wrong way and, and they can't 
for the life of them figure out how to make that kind of oh yeah I absolutely know that we all know somebody like that yeah so the so the Chinese uh, in Chinatown they start seeing Kenyon as as too aggressive they start calling him the wolf doctor and they start hiding bodies from him um, so he is even he's flying blind even more um, the city officials don't trust him. They don't want the truth of the plague to get out because they know that it'll devastate the economy and it'll lead to public hysteria. And then uh, the other doctors who are, which should be his natural allies, they don't want to help him at all because they think that he thinks he's better than all of them. And he, and he kind of does. Uh, so he even tries to go through Chinatown and have police officers, you know, knock down doors and give mandatory inoculations of what's called the, the half-keen serum, which was not, it was the closest thing they had to a vaccination. It wasn't a vaccination, but it, and experiments in India showed that people who were given this shot had about a 40% fewer chance of, of developing plague, but it had very serious side effects. You know, it turned somebody flush for several days, high fever, followed by chills, their bodies would be very sore. Uh, it was it was one of those things where it was almost like a cure was was almost as bad as the disease. Uh-huh. Yeah. So nobody wanted to take it. By the way, what is the organism that causes the plague? Is it a virus, a bacteria? It's a bacteria. So it's Yersinia pestis is the, the Latin name for it. Uh, it was this was discovered um, only a few years before all of this. So they Kenyon knows what to look for when he's looking under a microscope. But the, at the time, they didn't know how to, to defeat the disease, and they also weren't sure exactly how it spread. They didn't have penicillin yet, huh? No. So, yeah, this is still still at the doorstep of the modern age. They don't have penicillin. They don't have antibiotics. They don't have – they don't really have anything. This is still – even the idea that germs and viruses and bacteria cause disease – it's still a question that many people don't believe. You know, this Kenyon is fighting a fight not only to, to save people, but to fighting a fight for the le, the legitimacy of science. Um, some, you know, the the governor eventually of, of California, uh, he doesn't want plague to the truth of the plague to get out, so he essentially calls it fake news, and he starts telling people saying like, you know, you're telling me that there's a, an outbreak of plague. But where are all the bodies? Um, you know, if there's if plague was truly here, more people would be dying. Wow, um, so people are dying. But you probably knew this. I didn't hiding the bodies. You probably knew this. I didn't know it. But penicillin wasn't. I just looked it up. They discovered it in '28, but didn't really use it to on infections until 1942. It's it's more recent than I realized. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the the medicines that we really depend on um, are are very recent. Um, and, you know, this was an age where, you know, the whole science was called bacteriology, which was, you know, the study of how bacteria cause disease. This was all really very new. You know, Kenyon was one of the first bacteriologists who ever worked in, in San Francisco. And um, 20 years before, he was literally one of the first students ever in bacteriology at, uh, at Bellevue Hospital in New York. Wow. Now, a little bit more about the disease spread by the fleas and rats, but they didn't know that at the time, or did did Kenyon know that uh, the the guy that first found the first victim jumped back thinking he could get it 
from from uh, being close. Is that true? Do you, can you get it from person to person, or does it need to come by way of a flea? Well, it it depends. So there, the disease really comes in, in three forms. Uh, there's the bubonic, which is you know the, the classic. You get the the swollen uh, bubo. Um, then there's septicemic, which gets in your bloodstream essentially. And then the most dangerous form is the pneumatic form, and that's the one where it can be spread just by coughing. It can go into the air. Um, but the disease typically, even to get to there, it's usually the, the pneumatic form is actually it's well, after it's been in the human population for a while. Um, but uh, to get it in the first place, it is spread by fleas on rats, but they didn't know that at the time. Um, they'd known for a long time, you know, ever since the, the Middle Ages and medieval times, that rats were associated with the plague, but they didn't know exactly how. Um, they still didn't, there's still the idea that plague just came from filthy places somehow. Um, and, you know, rats tend to live in, in filthy places. So they kind of put those two together. Um, one of the, you know, the Surgeon General, who also didn't want to admit that plague was in San Francisco, one of his solutions was just to go through the streets of San Francisco and just pour, pour boiling water everywhere. Um, he thought that would just clean up, you know, it would just sanitize and you know, clean up the filth and then plague would, would go away. Um, that didn't work, obviously, because uh, it was it was being spread by fleas. Um, and uh, that is later. Kenyon also didn't know how plague was being spread. It was only later when Kenya is essentially run out of town that somebody else comes in and essentially makes that connection. It's weird that the world couldn't figure out the flea part in 400 years. They couldn't figure that out. That's strange. The big thing was they didn't know, you know, you have to go back and it was only a couple of years ago before this happened that they ever, that they identified that the flea, the, the bacterium, which is actual, you know, causes the plague, they could finally spot that within fleas. So they knew that they finally knew what they were looking for. Um, and this was, you know, one of the, the chances where they could start putting that into action. Okay. Now there's the political problem. You had a governor who had a kind of a corrupt, crazy city and a corrupt governor, it turns out. Corrupt in that he was willing to put the safety of all the people uh, at risk for appearance sake. Can you talk about this is a Republican governor. Exactly. So his his name was uh, it was Henry Gage, and California, have to remember at the time, really had its entire economy, its entire vision of itself was based on the idea that this was some you know mythical golden land, you know the golden state, where you know somebody could come off uh, a boat or a train or, or come across the country and wealth was just there waiting for them. You know, you could find a gold nugget and suddenly you're, a, you're rich for the rest of your life. Um, so Gage did not want to in any way admit that plague could be in the, in the U S especially not in California. Uh, he knew that it was essentially a, a existential risk for, for the city and for the state. Uh, he was, you know, it's kind of a, a rough and tumble kind of guy. He he was a rancher, a sheep rancher in Los Angeles before he became a politician, and he kind of fashions himself as, you know, I'm I'm of the old California where you had to be rough and and strong and and put take your life in your own hands to uh, to survive, 
And he's the last person in the world who wants to say, you know, microscopes and doctors and, and lab coats, they're, they're the ones who are going to save us and not just, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps type thing. Okay, so how did he operate? How did he proceed? So he essentially tries to uh, quash any mention of the plague. Um, Ken Yoon, at one point, uh, so there's rumors of the plague spreading across the country. Um, the Hearst line of papers writes a, a front-page article saying, you know, the, the Black Death is in, in the U.S., and this is causes, you know, a, a national uh, panic to a certain extent. You know, people are coming westward on trains to move to California. They read this paper. They get back on the train heading the other direction right away. Um, so California does everything it can to say that that's, that's wrong. Um, uh, other papers, so the San Francisco Call is another large paper in, this, in the city, and it hires one of the, the – another very famous doctor – um, at the time, to come out and say, you know, say if there's plague there or not. Um, he starts there. Kenyon takes them and, and shows them some bodies, and he writes one article saying, you know, I'm sorry to say, but this is true. Plague is here. This really freaks Governor Gage out. So he spends the next day, he essentially wines and dines him, and he also pressures him, saying, are you really sure that you want to devastate an economy just because of one or two deaths? Are you really sure? You you haven't seen any living victims of the disease. How can you trust it's really there and that Kenyon isn't just tricking you? Um, how can you, are you really sure you want to take all this on your head? And he gets them to, to recant what he was saying. Uh, and Kenyon, in age season Kenyon, his personal enemy, you know, he, he starts calling him suspicious Kenyon in the newspapers. He uh, does everything he can to undermine him. He tries to withhold all state funding for all public health in California to try to essentially bankrupt Kenya and, and make him and starve him of any funds or resources he would need to, to save lives. How much did the fact that the victim victims were all Chinese, right? That must have played into it. It was easy to ignore the Chinese at the time. They would. Exactly. So this was, you know, this was a time of rampant anti-immigrant and especially anti-Asian bigotry. Um, the mayor of San Francisco at the time is a guy named James Fallon, and he later runs for the U.S. Senate, and he wins. And his his one of his campaign promises is keep California white. So it's it's as blatant as you can think. Um, and you know, Chinese at the time too aren't. There's no path to citizenship for them. Um, Chinese immigrants can't uh, legally work. They can't legally do many things. So that, that's why many of them, many live in Chinatown. And, you know, Felon, which later comes out, is actually a landlord in Chinatown. And he's making exorbitant rents because uh, landlords in Chinatown can charge as much as they want to because it's a very captive audience. Uh, but the Chinese have an incredibly difficult life in, in the U.S., and they are Chinese immigrants are, are seen as, you know, they're they're called, you know, slurs, racial slurs all the time, and and seen as this harbinger of disease and, and other things. So for the the Chinese who are living in, in San Francisco, they don't want to admit plague is there either because they don't want to bring 
additional unwanted attention on themselves. Um, when plague, before it got to San Francisco, plague was first in, in Honolulu, and they also did a, a quarantine there. Uh, but then, you know, there was so much fear of the disease that they essentially uh, lit Chinatown on fire and, and burned it to the ground. And people in San Francisco who are who are living in Chinatown are terrified that this is what's going to happen to them as well. This is not a spoiler. The plague didn't. We we were not wiped out by the plague. How come? Why why were we not? What saved the day? Well, what well what happens is so Kenyon, you know, even goes so far to briefly quarantine the entire state of California. This drives people in California insane. Uh, a state senator on the on the Senate floor says that Kenyon should be hanged. Um, Kenyon is essentially run out of town. They bring in a new another public health officer by the name of Rupert Blue. And where Kenyon was thought of as, you know, the most brilliant scientist, Blue is not. You know, he's he's actually thought of as kind of being lazy. Um, and he, maybe he has been in his life. But what he is is he's very nice, and he knows how to form social connections. So whereas Kenyon isolated himself, Blue actually, you know, he opens an office in Chinatown. He hires Chinese translators and treats them like they're full members of his staff, and he builds up trust. And lo and behold, Chinese translators start bringing him to, to living victims of the disease. They, they start showing him the bodies, and he's able to start making inroads. And he's also able to do things like you, you kind of think of what do we think of as the best of tech workers now yeah. in San Francisco, you know, a willingness to try new things and, and to experiment. Uh, and willingness to fail, he does all that because he does it in 1900. You know, he does everything from, you know, hiring Chinese workers, which was a radical idea at the time, to he even go so far as to um, dyeing different rats, different colors. You know, their fur, different colors, and red and blue and green. And he releases them into the sewers, and he puts up flyers everywhere saying, if you see a rat. It's a different color, you know. Let me know and exactly where, so we can chart the path of how they're the subterranean pathways underneath the city, so he knows where to target the rats and where to target, you know, their bait. And he is the first one to realize that it is the fleas that are spreading plague, and he also takes the you know pretty radical state, uh, radical motion at the time, that he no longer treats it as as a racial disease. Uh, many people, you know, many in the um, the white community, European community, and in San Francisco or in the rest of the U.S., have this mistaken idea that white people can't get plague anymore; that somehow they've evolved immunity away from it, which is which is not true. Um, but he, instead of saying, you know, this is some racial disease, he realizes that anybody can can get it, and he starts going after the rats and the fleas as the vectors of the disease, as opposed to making it a, a, uh, a disease of, of humans. Um, so he, he helps contain the disease. And then um, there is, you know, it's contained to a certain extent, but then there's the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 and the disease spreads to all corners of the city. How did the and, earthquake you know, spread it? Uh, so the fleas, the rat fleas that were in Chinatown, just they they spread elsewhere. They go they go out throughout the whole city, um, and there's many more ships that are bringing in more goods from from Asia. So there's more there the could be more infected rats coming in that way as well. Uh, so now 
places where it had never had plague now have plague. And that really gets the city's attention. Um, and there's also an outbreak of the more um, the more dangerous, virulent form of the disease, the, the pneumatic plague, which you can get from coughing. Um, two Italian immigrants who were living in what was then called the Latin Quarter, which is now called North Beach, um, two uh, a man and a wife die within hours of each other, and they realize, um, you know, the one of her father goes and attends her autopsy, and he dies the next day too. He he had the disease; he just didn't realize it. Um, so they realize that you know there's a much more dangerous form of the disease spreading, and blue. Uh, he institutes one of the the most radical public sanitation measures ever taken in a city, and they they focus on rat eradication. Uh, they kill something like two million rats, which is five times the amount of hu- the human population in the city. And he starts instituting all these kind of things that we take for granted now, uh, like street sweeping and, and having concrete sidewalks so rats can't run underneath and, and rat-proofing sidewalks, rat-proofing to trash cans and, and everything else. And he becomes a hero and he saves he saves the city. And, and not only that, he he's brought into other cities like Philadelphia and Boston and, and New York to institute these same kind of public sanitation and public hygiene measures. And largely because of this, the average lifespan, you know, and other things like the development of antibiotics, the average lifespan of American wow. uh, extends I, by like 30 years. I want to leave, you know, the details to the folks so they can enjoy them in the book, Black Death at the Golden Gate. You, could you, just one quick question, uh, maybe 20 second answer. Rupert Blue saved the United States, really, didn't he? He is. He's, he, more people can uh, are alive because of him, and he's one of those national heroes that nobody knows about. Yeah. So maybe we should dump Columbus Day and have Blue Day, Rupert Blue Day. Thanks a lot. Thanks so <laughs> much. I appreciate it. David K. Randall, great stuff. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. This There's a lot more in this book. You didn't get it all. There's the, the uh, information and the details. You got the main points. It's really something. Black Death at the Golden Gate. Let's break. It's WBZ. We got to talk. What do we got to talk about? Mr. Bradley. Jay talking. You hear me? With Bradley Jay. WBZ News Radio 1030. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at Midi understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And Midi can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. 
Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Do you want to talk? About what? I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Okay, talk. Jay Talking with Bradley J. WBZ. News Radio 1030. Thank you very much. David K. Randall, Black Death at the Golden Gate. Who knew? Bubonic Plague. Bubonic Plague is not completely dead, you know. It can come back. All right, Dan Ray, Nightside, Dan and Nancy, <clears throat> Dan Ray, Nancy Shack. Well, they had a number of blisteringly excellent segments, and one of them I th- I, I'm going to continue with because I want to share my my thoughts. You know, when I listen to them, just like you, I listen to what they say. I develop theor- theorems. Theories, and then, as you call, those theories get tested, and I think, yeah, I'm, I'm right. My theory stands up great, or I find that somebody has a great idea, a great thought, and and it bursts my theorem. I, I come out the other end of the hour or the two hours, really having vetted the topic and developed my uh, my ideas on it, and so I wanted to. Continue with the the topic that Dan and Nancy addressed, where they asked you, "Hey, should there be transgender sports separately? Should there be men's sports, women's sports, and transgender sports?" All right, we'll get into that. Let me give you my take. But before I do, as I was researching this myself, because what I wanted to find out is. I don't think so. I just wanted to double check. Can a man really be made a woman? And part of that might be to have ovaries installed. But that's a whole other debate, or whether having ovaries is crucial to being a woman. But as I was researching, I saw this article from 2012. It's just super interesting. Man admitted to hospital for kidney stone discovers he's a woman. Of course, it depends on your definition of woman, which is in play here. Colorado man was admitted to the hospital back in 2012 for a kidney stone. He received surprising news when the nurse came back with test results, revealing he was actually a woman. Of course, this is the press. This They're phrasing this in a way that'll sell. Denver photographer Steve Cresselius said he's felt a little different all his life. Since when he was about six years old, he started having feminine feelings, but that was in the 60s, wearing my mom's makeup. He thought he would look pretty. So when he went to the emergency room f- five years ago, so this was five years prior to 2012, he wasn't too shocked when the nurse told him she found both genders in his ultrasound results. He had male genitalia and internal female sex organs. Well, okay, that's just interesting. That's not really germane to anything. That's okay because it's entertaining. So let me ask you here to continue. If you didn't call Dan and Nancy, maybe you weren't able to because you were driving, 
Call me on this. What about transgender sports? Listening to Dan and Nancy, I decided that maybe we have to walk back this willingness to just say, you feel like a woman? Okay, you can be a woman. Because maybe you just can't. And I thought this through, and I realize now that there's two, two parts to being a woman. The psychological part and the physical part. Just because you identify as a woman doesn't mean you are a woman. That's my new place. Maybe you can agree, you can agree with me or you can change my mind. <clears throat> you may identify as a woman. You may identify with women. But that doesn't change the fact when it comes to some activities that you're not a woman. You're 6'5". You're 6'5". You can palm a basketball. You're size 13 feet. You have giant hands. You know, you can feel like you're a woman all you want, but physically, you may not be. And it matters. As a, pers- a person called Dan and Nancy saying, you know, I don't feel comfortable having my daughters play with some dude because they're bigger and more aggressive. Pick this up after the break. Go to WBZ1030.com slash love and enter the Direct Federal Credit Union Love Where You Live contest for your chance to win more than $8,000 in prizes. Beginning April 22nd, listen for your name weekdays to win a $100 gift card to Legal Seafoods. If it isn't fresh, it isn't legal. Plus, you could win the grand prize, including prizes from North Shore Music Theater, Yankee Custom Truck, and Nina's Lighting. No purchase necessary. Contest ends May 17th. WBZ Boston, WXKS FM HD2 Medford, and iHeartRadio Station. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.